Welcome to Teaching Artist Podcast, a show dedicated to discussions of teaching art to kids, making art, and how those things overlap and feed each other. I'm Rebecca Potts, your host, a visual arts teaching artist. week I'm sharing a featured artist as well as a guest interview. I'll share a bit about the featured artist here as well as sharing images of their work on Instagram and on the website. This week's featured artist is Nadine Monti. She was born in Mauritius and has been teaching in international schools in Southeast Asia and India for the last 10 years. She also holds a BFA and has been painting for the last 20 years. She has participated in solo and group exhibitions in Mauritius, Lebanon, Italy, and the Seychelles. As a child, she was always drawn to nature as they bring her great joy and keep her grounded. Through art, she creates her own sanctuary, which she portrays by depicting a collection of lush foliage with soothing colors and inspiring forms. And I usually share a bit of the artist's statement, and it was brought to my attention recently that I've been reading these statements in the first person, so saying I, but I'm reading for the artist. So I'm shifting that. It always felt a little strange, but for some reason it didn't click in my head that I could just change the words. So I was reading she or them or using the pronouns instead of reading in the first person. So I'm going to share a bit of Nadine's statement. Inspired by the boundless colors unique to the tropical traits of the Southeast Asian region, her compositions represent a deep understanding of the natural world and an awe of its unpredictable flow. She incorporates bold, somewhat delicate shapes of intuitive abstraction in her work. The natural complexity of colors leads to a dreamy, organic composition of feminine perspective, both lush and abundant. She has developed a sensitive approach to emotions, value, and context. Her foliage compositions are always focused on structure with a unique palette, embracing her emotional sense rather than literal reproduction of nature. She invites the audience to reconnect with nature and to embrace its healing powers. And we will be sharing her work both on Instagram at Teaching Artist Podcast and on our blog at teachingartistpodcast.com. Her work is so beautiful. If you have not yet seen it, I am excited to share. Now, if you would like to be featured, you can submit your work at teachingartistpodcast.com slash opportunities. Sarah Pimenta talked about her participatory work with a wide variety of groups, from children in schools to community groups to corporate groups. She thinks of herself as a sort of conductor, using questions to pull out imagery and marks reflecting a story or theme. I loved hearing how she's worked with a psychologist to publish books, but also develop programming with the power of the arts for reflection and healing in mind. 
It was also interesting to hear about her own personal work with mosaic, the idea of allowing ourselves to make art that is just for us and not meant for sales or exhibition or teaching sometimes feels revolutionary. Sarah Pimenta is an experienced artist, workshop facilitator, and lecturer on creativity. Her specialist art form is printmaking, and her creative practice has brought texture, color, and emotion into a variety of environments, both in the UK and abroad. Sarah has over 20 years' experience of designing and delivering creative, high-quality art workshops in over 250 schools, diverse communities, and public venues, including the British Library, V&A, Nesta, Oval House, and many charities. Her work is often described as art with therapeutic intent, and she is skilled in working with adults and children who have access issues and complex needs. Sarah recently illustrated three therapeutic fairy tales for young children on challenging journeys and co-wrote a storybook manual on how to work creatively and therapeutically with story. Sarah is known as Social Fabric. Let's hear from Sarah. I am speaking with Sarah Pimenta all the way across the pond, (laughs) and I'm excited to hear more about all of your experience and like to just start with the background. Could you talk through how you got into teaching and also how you became an artist? Yeah, that sounds great, Rebecca. How I got into teaching, it's funny. I actually trained, first of all, as a textile designer. From when I was a very small child, I've always loved art. And it's always been my thing. It's always been the thing that I was good at. So when I went to uni, I did printed textile design with a view to becoming a textile designer because I love colour and pattern and texture. But then I think once I started working, I missed social interaction. And I actually had a child quite early and I needed a, a job that was fitted into our lifestyle better. So I decided an education degree with a view to becoming an art teacher. But instead of that happening, towards the end of the degree, I um, was invited to be a lead artist on a participatory art project that was being run locally. And the guy that did the training ran a collaborative arts company in London, and we got on really well. And then for the next 20 years, we ended up working together. And I started running big art projects, participatory art projects in London, working with schools and communities nationally. So that's how I got into it. Amazing. And then you feel like that gave you what you needed in terms of scheduling and working around parenting? Yeah, well, what was great was because most of our work was in term time, it fitted in around parenting. So even though sometimes the days were a bit longer because I didn't always work locally because I had to do a lot of travel, um, it was great because I was still able to have school holidays off as much as possible. And I didn't always do every single day of the week. So when I was doing the planning and the prep for projects, I could work at home. So that fitted in really well with with parenting. And I'm forever grateful for that because as I was a, I mean, I was a single mum when I was younger and I really wanted to carry on being an artist. And that, and being a teaching artist gave me the ability to carry on being an artist, work with loads of different exciting partners and still provide for my family, which was great. I was very lucky because I think meeting Cloth of Gold, which was the name of the company, um, because we 
had a really good reputation. We had a lot of work. And I know it would have been harder if I hadn't been affiliated with that organisation at that point. So we worked with lots of big organisations. We worked with the Tate Gallery, St Paul's Cathedral, the Barbican, Horderman Gallery. Lots, Most of the big name places in London invited us in to do art projects with them. It was a really great opportunity. And then later on, I became the director of Cloth of Gold, which is now called Social Fabric. Social Fabric is the same continuation of that, but it's much smaller now. And it's mainly my own ship, so to speak. (laughs) And could you talk about some of the projects you did? Were there any that really stood out? Yeah, lots of them. I mean, the one one at St. Paul's Cathedral was one that was on quite early on, and that was very exciting. We made huge banners. We made about 20 to 30 huge banners that were hung from the top of the cathedral inside to the floor. And we hand screen printed all of them in different primary schools. So that was an epic project. And in the future, after doing that project, whenever we had to do really big banners, we did a combination of hand screen printing, painting and digital technology. So we'd get them, we'd get the hand printed techniques digitally printed onto the huge banners. But that project was completely created by hand. And it was amazing to go to that event and see them hanging in in such a prestigious location and have all the primary school children be able to attend and see their work. And they were mainly from inner city London primary schools too. So it was a great opportunity for those kids to see their work there. And so that was amazing. Yeah. And getting that recognition too. That's incredible. Yeah. And the project we did at the Tate was really interesting because we worked with, um, we created banners that were interpretations of some of the artwork that were in the gallery. And the pieces we made also had spoken word on them because we worked with poets to create poetry that aligned with the printed work. Yeah, I've been very lucky. I've done lots of really exciting projects. More recently, I've done workshops at the V&A. And did you hear about, there was a horrible tragedy that happened in London called the Grenfell Tower. There was a tower that unfortunately burnt down due to the fact it was clad in unsafe cladding. And it caused a lot of people to lose their homes, lose their lives. And after that, the local primary schools invited me in to work with the children on a project about community and belonging because they really needed something to hold them. So we created art pieces that reflected those themes that were then uh, printed onto metal and put outside the school for people to see. So a lot of a lot of the work I've done has also got a therapeutic intent, and that's part of one of my values, really, that my work should have that as part of what it offers to you know communities and people I work with. Yeah, I love that idea of something to hold them. You know, you're creating these banners and these images that like they're literally holding the image. But it's also this idea of like holding someone's emotion, holding space for someone. Yeah, and giving, and giving people a space to communicate and reflect. Because a lot of children, you know, if you ask them to communicate with words, they're not always able to in the way they want to. But I found that sometimes if you ask them to create an image or a drawing, it's it's very powerful and it speaks louder than words could. What is wonderful about creating work with young people in that way? Yeah, that's beautiful and amazing to see how that comes through with young people. Yeah, because I work with all age groups. I work with primary right through to secondary and sometimes with with adult groups as well and it's quite nice having the variety 
I mean, I know sometimes it's very nice to stay with one age group, but I quite like the flexibility and the variety of working with all different groups. Yeah. And what does it look like when you kind of start a project? How much time do you spend with them? Does that vary a lot? And kind of, yeah, could you talk through some of the logistics, just how that looks? Yeah, definitely. I've had some projects where I've been asked to be like the lead artist in a primary school, and then we might have done been in, in that school for something like six weeks. I worked across the school with different year groups and different classes. But most of my projects these days, sometimes they can be, like a lot of people ask me to come in and create banner to reflect a story or a theme. Normally something like a four day in school project. So depending on how many they want, sometimes I do banner projects which reflect school values and they want the whole school to be involved. And I might be in school for five days screen printing the banners with different groups and then come in for three days to do drawing with different groups and meet with teachers so you know eight days so there's lots of variation with um, how long I'm in school for or and sometimes I can be in for two days just coming in to do one piece of work with a class right and how have you approached you know if you're coming in to help sort of tell a story that feels like such a quick time to come in and really like work with people around their story. I guess what sort of tips or advice would you have around kind of building that relationship so quickly and getting those images out of the kids? I think it's about questioning and really thinking about how you focus the question to get people to, you have to have really think about what you want them to say, really think about how you're going to question them, get people to do lots of practice drawings. So quite a lot of the time I get them to have the question before I come in, so they've already had time to think before I come in and get them to translate their ideas into imagery. So it's already been something that's in their heads what I do sometimes I do work with women's group for example and they're quite often you know six to eight week programs where I work every morning with a group and in those situations it's fine because people have got like you were saying they have got more time to really think about what they want to say and how they want to reflect it as an image for example but I think with it's funny with school children because sometimes their first responses are really powerful and sometimes I think if they have too long to think about it it doesn't always make it better in terms of coming up with an idea and I think yeah so I've got you know I've managed to get some very interesting responses from young people in quite a short amount of time it's difficult though because I do understand that obviously it's amazing if you've got a class and then you have them week after week after week you get to know them really well and you can get work from them but I think with the way I work because schools pay me to come in to deliver a specific project and they want the outcome I think I've had to make my offering quite concise so they really get a good result from a short interaction in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is such an interesting way of working, especially thinking about how as teachers, usually we do have a long time with our students, although it always feels short. <laughs> a lot of schools ask me to come back. So quite often I come in to a school and then they get me back another year to do another project. So I sometimes get to know communities quite well, which is lovely. Yeah, that's beautiful. Even if you're not having a deep relationship with each student, but you're really getting to know the teachers, the community, the the school, just a little bit about them. That's interesting. And actually also something I've really noticed is quite often if I go into a class, a full-time teacher might say, oh, you know, be cautious of that child because their behavior is, a, is X, Y, and Z. And actually mm -hmm. I prefer when people don't tell me that 
because quite often what we get is I might get amazing work from that child because they like working with someone they don't normally work with and they can often be part of themselves to the experience because there's not, I've got no prejudgment on who they are and I think that's important for children sometimes to work with somebody different because you know they can present a different side to themselves. Right yeah and I've heard that from teachers too that they'll kind of warn me ahead of time about a class or about you know specific students and that that judgment and trying to pass that judgment on to others can be so frustrating yeah it really can be and um it's funny because often when I was with cloth of gold and we'd sometimes go into schools in pairs we'd always make a point if they told us to be wary of a certain child we'd always make an extra fuss of that child and we always I mean I always make friends with the naughty ones I always like them and I think that's quite a benefit actually isn't it when you get to just pop in you know you can you can give a child a different experience because they know that you're not going to be there for long or they don't know anything about you so that's a good thing mm-hmm. yeah absolutely and I feel like that also touches on this idea and I'm not sure if sort of the same thing is happening over there but I know you know in the U.S. there's been what people have called like a second pandemic of systemic racism kind of rearing its head and people becoming maybe more aware of what's been going on for a long time. And within education, that's been, you know, a big discussion topic, just teachers really like questioning how we're, you know, either uplifting our students or continuing kind of this racist status quo, how, how we kind of break that down. Does that come into your work at all? And how does it what's going on over there? It's interesting, because I'm I mean, I'm British Indian so obviously I'm, I'm non-white and I think that's always been a plus for me because I when I go into school I can be a role model because they're not used to having artists coming in that aren't from, who might be from a similar background to them especially it's interesting yeah. also because I live in West Sussex which is it's a majority it's a white area and but I mainly work in London because it's a much more diverse environment and I think I really something I'm quite passionate about because I like you know being able to give children an opportunity to see how they could do something different for example in terms of what happened in America I think that had a massive impact over here there were loads of pro- there was especially you know from George Floyd after his there was loads of protests uh, there's a, a big call to bring more of the black curriculum into education and sort of just acknowledge you know different cultural backgrounds and I think London's already been fairly good at that anyway. It's quite a diverse city, but I think it needs to spread out to the rest of the country as the rest of the country gets more diverse. So I'm very much, you know, passionate about all of those things. And a lot of my projects are about celebrating diversity and community and people's differences. So that's something that I refl- that's quite reflected in a lot of the work that I do. So I did a project not long ago in uh, King's Cross, which is a very diverse area. And we did a project about welcome, but we sort of looked at all the different languages that were spoken in the school and looked at the word welcome in all those different languages. And we represented them on the banner so that everybody that came into that school community would be recognised recognised do a lot of projects that are like that but it's difficult to know how to really change things and it's actually very sad that we're still having to change things (laughs) after all these years sometimes it feels so daunting and then I feel like a helpful way to look at it and to just keep moving forward is to do kind of as much as you can in your little sort of circle whether that's like 
within your own body? Like, how are you liberating yourself and then moving that beyond to like the next person you talk to and the larger community and kind of expanding it from there that it starts within yourself? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, it's funny because when I was growing up, my family are all scientists and Mm. academics. And I was the only one that's ever wanted to do. Well, I mean, I never had any other choice. I wasn't good at anything other than art. (laughs) It was very hard for my parents because they wanted me to go into a completely different field of work because they didn't understand how anyone could make a living as an artist. And so I had to, that was a boundary I had to cross quite young. And, And so I'm quite passionate about telling that story and role modeling to young Indian girls. They don't have to follow their academic life. They can be creative. It is still important and to do other things, (laughs) even though it's not a good life in terms of making money. So maybe they are, you know, (laughs) dreams and do whatever they want to really. (laughs) But it's, it's good to break stereotypes sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And that like you talked about how you can be a role model for the kids that you interact with and just seeing you in there as a British Indian woman who's now in this creative position, you know, seeing somebody else who's done it is sometimes enough to kind of give a kid that spark. Yeah, well, I I just know that I never did when I was young. I think when I started, because I'm actually 50 now, I'm quite old. But when I started doing this, it was just over 20 years ago. And in those days, there really wasn't a lot of participatory artists who educated in, in school. So I was a rarity it was quite interesting but now there's lots of young people rising up because I think there's lots of people that want to help each other want to get into participatory work be it artists or musicians or dancers or actors and there's lots of you know lots of creatives that go into community from all sorts of backgrounds so I think things have changed now yeah and it keeps shifting yeah Exactly, exactly I mean it's going to shift again though because I mean I keep hearing horror stories about how arts being taken off the curriculum in education which is horrifying because I just think that gives so many kids a voice and you know academia as we well know isn't for every child so it's terrible I mean just very recently I think I saw a friend wrote on Facebook that art and music had been taken off the curriculum so they weren't offered as A-level subjects anymore in that particular school and it's very sad and also you know like everywhere in the world because our governments had to bail out so many people because of the pandemic there's going to be less money for creative projects for the arts in general in the future and a lot of us who rely on funding for interesting projects with communities it's going to be harder there's no point thinking it isn't going to be because it is <laughs> but we've just got to keep going we've just got to keep going and um, keep doing what we do yeah and we've seen similar things where yeah the funding for nonprofit art organizations that you know a lot of our schools have already cut art from the curriculum and it's only provided by nonprofits and now the funding that they receive is drastically changed so I know it's very sad I mean I with my own practice when we had cloth of gold we used to put in a lot of funding applications to work with different organizations and everything but my model now is the organization puts in the funding application and then they me because I just haven't got the resources to spend hours and hours writing funding applications that might not come off but if other people do it and then employ me in it means I have you know regular work and I'm affiliated with quite a few different ones. And most recently, there's one called Artist in Residence. And they get, they're very well known here. Mm-hmm. And they're affiliated with quite a few funding bodies that mean they can 
run a programme of artists working in different schools. So that's quite good. But mm-hmm. I just hope they can continue. I hope people like that can continue to support the arts because kids need it more than ever. I mean, there's something here also which is called the recovery curriculum for post-pandemic. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that's going to be focused on arts and creativity. So I'm hoping that will mean there will be mm-hmm. opportunities. Yeah, that's an amazing thing to think about, the recovery curriculum and how, you know, when I hear it, I think of this kind of push to catch up to get back on track and picture like lots and lots of math and reading sort of remedial. But I love hearing that there's so much of an arts focus because I think that's where the true recovery is. Definitely. So I work with an art psychotherapist a lot called Pia Jones and we've um, written and illustrated quite a few children's books that have been published and they're all about using imagery and words together to give children an opportunity to have a conversation about difficult subjects because mm-hmm. art's so powerful you know it's like we were always saying it gives kids a voice it helps them to express it helps them to understand things they might not understand in other ways yeah absolutely but we want to link in with this recovery curriculum to run some programs where we can use mindful art technique to help children to express some of the things they've been going through i mean there's going to be a lot of work to be done in the future isn't there <laughs> yes oh and What has it looked like for you? How has your work shifted during the pandemic and having lockdowns? Have you been able to continue working through, you know, remotely or how, what has shifted? Well, it was hard. I mean, last March, this time last March, when it first started, it was awful because suddenly I had a really busy year ahead. I just had a very busy year and project after project just got cancelled. So suddenly I saw my diary empty of, of yeah. projects, which was quite scary. But I, I mean, I got an Arts Council grant and there was also some self-employment grants that were available to creatives like me, which I was able to access, which was good. And then bit by bit, I had to learn how to teach on Zoom. <laughs> and then I had a, a couple of projects with uh, one project with a community in London, which was great. I had managed to have one live session before we went back into lockdown. But then the young people sent me images by email, which I then printed out, cut out and turned into a screen printed banner in my studio all the while keeping them in touch of what's going on via images on whatsapp so that was still collaborative practice but lockdown style <laughs> covid proof and then i've had a few projects where i've had to think of a art activity for young people and send them the kits record yeah. myself teaching and we've done a few projects like that too and i also lecture on creativity and i've done that over zoom so i've had to do lots of things like that some of it i've really liked actually and some of it not so much (laughs) yeah do you feel like there are things you've sort of been forced to learn that you'll stick with that you'll keep as part of your practice i mean i think even i mean even things like this i've had to learn to reach out more and i've been talking about what I do more which Mm. has been quite beneficial I think some of the meetings I've really I think I'm going to carry on doing on zoom because I used to spend a lot of time going to meetings which weren't always paid but actually Mm. you know you know sort of sometimes traveling for a few hours a day to get to a meeting you know just to set up a project actually it's just as I can do it just as easily on zoom without leaving my house so there's a few things like that which I'm going to hang on to and in some ways with some of my lecturing work I've noticed some Some people were extremely creative when they were in the safety of their own home, more so when they were in a classroom where they had to sort of come up with ideas in front of other people. There's a few takeaways that, you know, I could 
work on that were equally successful. But when I'm making banners and things, I think that is much better with a group, doing it all together, everyone getting messy. That's part of the fun. <laughs> so I think it's a combination. But I like the fact that it's opened up different avenues of working. And I've got a project coming up in the summer with a gallery and I'm designing an art workshop which will go out to 30 schools or something. And the children will yeah. make something which will all be sent back to us and then we'll turn it into an installation. And actually, that's quite a nice model for schools that haven't got very many resources and for teachers that haven't got an arts background. It's quite a good way for them to be able to access a creative project quite easily that has quite a big impact. So there are some models which we didn't do before, which quite useful moving forward. Yeah, I love that. And hearing about the meetings, just being able to shift that is huge and makes so much sense. Yeah, and I don't think I'd have had the confidence to say that before. So even last week, a, a school asked me to come in and meet with three of their department and then I sort of looked at the math and thought it'll take me an hour and a half to get there an hour and a half to get home for a what could be a 20 minute meeting and so, and I just said oh, could we do it on zoom and I wouldn't have suggested it before and they were fine with it and it worked totally fine that was a good thing <laughs> yeah definitely uh. Hey listeners, I'm jumping in here because I have an ask of you. If you are enjoying the show, I would so appreciate your support. I'm humbled and grateful for all the interest in this show over the past several months and for the messages I've received letting me know that this podcast has resonated with you. It has been so inspiring to hear from you. Thank you. This podcast does take time, effort, and resources to share with you every week. And I want to, I plan to, keep it going and stay focused on highlighting and inspiring artists who teach, while also continuing to grow this community and dreaming up additional ways to help you. One way to accomplish this is through direct listener support. Your support would really help the show and community grow. So I've set up a link where you can quickly and easily support the show. The whole thing will take less than 60 seconds. It's at anchor.fm slash teaching artist podcast slash support. You can contribute one, five or $10 per month. If teaching artist podcast is a part of your week and you love what we're doing, please consider visiting anchor.fm slash teaching artist podcast slash support or just clicking the link in the show notes and supporting us in any way that you can today. And your own creative practice, your work is... Do you think of the, like, are the banners that you make through these participatory projects, is that sort of your work or do you have other work that's solely your own, like individual artwork as well? 
It's really funny because I another reason why I went into education, as I'm sure a lot of us do, is because I thought all the holidays would give me untold time to create my own work. <laughs> but quite often, with what I, because I go into so many different places making the participatory artworks, when I get time off, I'm normally exhausted. <laughs> so the last thing I want to do is do too much myself. But what I do do, weirdly, is I make mosaics. Because oh, yeah. I just I just find it quite mindful and therapeutic and quiet. So I've made two or three huge, well not huge, but fairly big, round mosaic mandalas, and we just have colour and pattern. And I quite like just going into the studio and sitting there and putting those together for myself. But I don't sell them yet. I've just made them for my own home. But when I do the participatory banners, it's funny because I design them. I think of the colours. I think of the story and then I work with the group to bring them to life. But I feel like I'm the conductor mm. while they're the orchestra. And so it's part of my creative process to bring those together. So I get a lot of satisfaction from doing that. And they're normally quite big scale. So it's quite an exciting thing to work on. Yeah, that's amazing. And I know through that, you've worked with so many galleries and museums, amazing organizations. Do you feel like those relationships would translate to you then being like an individual artist with them? I'm not sure. I think if I then had spent a lot more time than I have have done developing my own practice in the studio reflecting the same techniques I think maybe but I don't think I have I've had I've often had gallery saying you know would you like to exhibit some of your own work but because I've always been so busy with the participatory projects I haven't created a whole load of print work that does support that it's it's really weird it's funny because last year I really thought I would and I did make a couple of pieces but I think I get my energy from working with other people so the participatory work is is my work now and again I might have some print ideas and I'll put them together and do a series of cushion covers or something but I never I haven't really pushed that side of my work in order to sell it but I'm not saying that I won't I'm just saying maybe not yet yeah and I I mean I love that picture of you as like a conductor as putting all these layers of story and image together I mean that's beautiful and there's so many artists that do work social practice art and and working with participatory projects you know that's a totally valid studio practice yeah Thanks, Rebecca. It's funny that it took me a while to come to terms with that, but it, it is. And also all the techniques, because I do, I use so many different techniques within my banners, sort of mark making, relief printing, mono printing, block printing, screen printing, and tie it all together. So whenever I do go into art colleges or art schools, I always often get asked by the art teachers to do an inset with them to teach them some of the techniques I've used, because there are lots of those techniques I've developed over the years. I feel like, especially with printmaking, it's something that feels a little bit magical. You know, anytime I demonstrate, I get all the oohs and ahs. <laughs> the students are so excited about it. Yeah, it's so, so lovely. I know I'm just as funny, actually, because you never really get bored of it, do you, with printmaking? And what I like about it is sometimes it's even mistakes that you make can be what turns into something that looks just amazing. I think even like with the relief printing, it was once I think I left a piece of lace or a leaf on a screen and accidentally printed the relief that was on the screen 
screen without the leaf being there. And I was like, oh, wow, where did that come from? And then realised that was a whole new technique. I still love that with young people when you do something like that. And they go, oh, my God, how did you do that? Which card did you put first? How yes. did that work? You know? <laughs> so I like all that magic, the magic of that. And it does look brilliant together. And also I do lots of analogue mark making. So I might say to a young person, think about when you felt really happy and then they'll express that mark in a monoprint. And that will be one of the layers within the banner that isn't obvious, but it's still in there. So it captures all of those emotions and thinking about how people respond to different colours. And there's lots of things that go into it beyond the drawing something, cutting out as a stencil and screen printing it. Beneath that, there's lots of other layers and textures that have different types of meaning. Yeah, that's beautiful. Just picturing the emotions that are embedded within all of that. Well, I was going to say, especially I've done quite a lot of work with young people with special educational needs. And for them, you know, they can't always draw clearly, but all of them can do mark making, even if they're nonverbal or in a wheelchair so I've done lots of work with those young people and they've just managed to make a mark into some sort of inked up surface and then when you put that on it's a it's an authentic piece contribution from them onto an artwork that they've made themselves not had someone holding their hand to make something so finding ways to get that onto work is really important for me as well I really hate it with casting yeah. assistants who draw things for children. I always want, I'd rather it was, I'd rather the children did it and it, you know, it's whatever they did is much more valuable than any adult supporting their mark making or drawing. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I've seen that where, you know, the difference between handing a child a, like an adapted brush, where if, you know, because I've had, before we went into lockdown, I had one student who, needed some adaptive tools and his aide initially wanted to just be like, oh, what? just give him whatever everybody else is using. Like, I'll help him out. And we really pushed back. And we were, I was just like, no, you know, he needs to be able to do it on his own. And, and it's not just... You know, it's the end result is, I think, so much more beautiful and valuable, but it's also the end result is not just the product. It's like his feeling exactly, around it. Exactly. Exactly. It's very, it's so important. And that was, and whatever mark yeah. that is, it's beautiful because they created it and then they'll have a, a sense of pride over it where they wouldn't have if they couldn't have, you know, achieved it by themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And there's always a way where there's a will, there's a way. <laughs> Yeah. And there's so many, you know, there's like companies that make special adaptive tools and things to be able to make that happen. Mm, Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? I quite often use things like plastering tools and stuff like that for printmaking because some of them have got quite good handles and they've got really nice textures. And I always sort of put a few things like that in my kit. That's quite useful. Oh, I love that. Sponges. I use everything. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I'm always collecting random recycling bits and pieces. <laughs> I know it's awesome. all of the leftover tape roll tubes that make great circles. Yeah, all of that stuff's brilliant. It's funny actually because um, when I've been doing a lot of my online teaching, one thing that's been different is obviously I've done some printing, but I've mainly done things like 
block printing or potato printing using found paints because with my screen printing you do need specialist equipment and so it was harder to encourage people to do those sort of projects because they wouldn't have been able to access the equipment easily at all so I've been doing all sorts of projects that I wouldn't have done before like making puppets out of recycled materials or printing using recycled materials but just using paint so I've had to be quite flexible (laughs) to keep working but it's been good actually it's always good to do things a little bit differently now and again. Yeah, and I think flexible is <laughs> the word of the year. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting how that flexibility like stretches us. Mm, yeah. And actually I think um there were lots of benefits. I think having it was quite nice for me, I think, to have a bit of headspace as well. Because it can be quite constant as you know when you're teaching and going to different locations day after day after day it's quite exhausting Mm -hmm. and I've done it for so long it wasn't necessarily too bad a thing actually having to slow down for a bit and have a bit of space for a little while and actually the last few weeks quite a few different projects have come in so I can see myself getting busy again hopefully they all happen (laughs) a couple of them are covid proof but a couple of them are from schools who want me to go in and work with the young people so I'm really looking forward to them but it'll be funny one of my me and a friend were joking about having to get workshop fit again get the energy it takes especially I think with the sort of work I do I get paid because people want an outcome they want a professional looking outcome that's made with the young people that they can then display in the school um, or elsewhere and so that puts quite a lot of pressure around a project because you're not just going in it's not about just going in to help the children experience it's got to look good (laughs) so I never sit down all day and I don't have lunch break because in lunch I'm always running around you know trying to make sure everything's organized for them like all teachers like like all teachers so but it's just that extra pressure of having to then finish the banner in the days that you're allocated um, so that they can so the young people can see the finished product so it takes a lot of energy especially as if I'm traveling from home sometimes it's a two-hour journey there two-hour journey home so I've got to I think I need to find some sort of fitness routine to get fit again before I have to start doing all of that again Yeah, I've noticed that too, that I went from being on my feet almost all day to now sitting almost all day. Yeah, <laughs> it's a big change. Yeah, because obviously all the Zoom teaching after, yeah, we're all sitting down. <laughs> so I need to get off my, get up and out again. <laughs> yeah, I think my sort of saving grace is that I, I have a five-year-old, so I've still been, you know, she's doing remote schooling. So we're at home a lot, but we try to get outside for a while every day and kind of chase her around <laughs> keeps me at least a little bit active. <laughs> no, that'll keep you, that keeps you very active. I remember the energy of a five-year-old. <laughs> My son's grown up now, luckily. He had a yeah. lot of energy when he was little. <laughs> oh. I, I remember, you know, those days of going out, you know, waking up 5.30, getting him organised, dropping him off at childcare, travelling to a workshop, delivering a workshop, coming home, doing after-school activities, cooking dinner, Day after day after day after day. I don't know how I did it. Anyway, I did do it and it was fine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, when you're in it, you just kind of keep on keeping on. That's all you can do, isn't it? And it was, I mean, it was worth it Mm. looking back at all the projects and everything. And he's a really creative young person now. He's done really well. And it was good for both of us. So it was a really positive experience because even though he's a scientist now, he's an engineer, but he's, he doesn't hesitate about writing a poem or painting a picture or 
playing an instrument. You know, creativity is such a huge part of his psyche. And I think that's because he grew up surrounded by it, even though his own career is taking him in a different direction. And I'm really grateful for that. But that's a big part of who he is. So it definitely didn't do him any harm being dragged around to load of workshops, which he was as well. <laughs> he was always like, Jacob, can you watch the, watch the screens for me? Can you just carry this to the workshops? And I, I used to drag him along as an assistant on Saturday, if I had to do a Saturday project when he was young. And But, you know, it was all good. It's all good. <laughs> yes. And I love that. I feel like that's what we're trying to instill in students a lot too, just uh, continued creativity, even if they do become engineers and not artists, that they're comfortable with the arts and, you know, can use it to express emotions, can feel welcome walking into a gallery and thinking about art, all of those yeah, things. Yeah, definitely, because it's such a solace to your soul, isn't it? And I think it needs to be, if it's part of your life and giving it that value to become a part of your life and to help when you're going through a hard time, no matter what role you have, it's really important. I've got a cousin who's a doctor, and but she's also really creative. And I remember once that she came along and helped me on an art project and she looked quite young and everyone was saying, oh, are you, are you an art student? She goes, actually, I'm a doctor, but I'm just helping today. <laughs> But she's always really valued it, so it's been really lovely. <laughs> what does your schedule look like? I guess maybe when we're not in a pandemic, you talked about how busy it was, kind of rushing back and forth all around to different places. What does that kind of look like day to day? How do you fit everything in? You have in? to be incredibly organized because I've also worked, especially when you're self-employed, because you know you get a project, you book it in, then something else massive might come in the week before, but you still have to hold true to the dates that you've got in the diary. So because I've also worked quite a lot internationally, I remember I did one project where I was actually in Shanghai, in China, and I flew back from Shanghai, got home at, 11.30 at night but the next morning I had to go and do a community arts project with vulnerable women in London so I literally had to get up the following morning at 6.30 to leave the house to go to London to do that project and so before I even went to China I had my bag packed ready so that when I came back I could just literally wake up pick up the bag get on the train go and do that I've had quite a few weeks like that so sometimes if I'm really busy, I've just got to be really, really organised. It's all about being organised. Yeah. It's never every single week like that. It might just be for a period of, you know, five or six weeks, and then I have a week off or something, because you can't maintain it when it gets that busy. You lose the love for it. And I think I'd rather turn down work than drive myself into the ground. Or Because then you're not bringing the creativity in the same way either, especially I'm not. I know some people probably could, but I would run out, I think. Not what, I wouldn't be bringing my best self, which is what people will be paying you for so that I don't think it's fair on them but normally it works out so those intense periods don't last for too long but I quite like the variety as well it's it's quite nice it's quite exciting sometimes (laughs) yeah I mean that's amazing so sometimes I work with companies and work with their employees to do creative work with them sometimes I organized an art holiday in France for two weeks last year and worked with groups doing printmaking and then I work with schools I work with communities so there's lots of diversity so every week can look completely different yeah that's amazing yeah I love that I like that flexibility and I like the fact it's offered me so many different opportunities I went to Africa and worked in some schools there for a few weeks a couple of years ago that was brilliant that had lots of its own challenges doing silkscreen printing in a room that hasn't got running water and has a corrugated iron ceiling in 40 degree heat 
Yeah. And how did you manage that? Was that, you know, like having buckets of water nearby? No, we thought about it before and there was some water recycle. They had a big rainwater butt, which obviously a lot mm-hmm. of it gets used for much more important reasons than washing silk screens. But we managed to print, so we just kept the screen moist, did as many prints as possible before we had to wash the screen and then use as little water as we could to do that so that it was quite environmentally conscious. We didn't want to waste any water at all. In you know, It wasn't in an area where they were experiencing any drought or anything, but water was valuable but there wasn't a shortage you know but yes yeah, so we thought about it and we just had a plastic I, when I took the materials out I packed it into a plastic crate and we used that plastic crate to collect the water when we were there mm-hmm. so we had to think about it carefully <laughs> yeah again being organized yeah people really underestimate how much organization art teaching takes don't they mm-hmm. because with practical you've got to be organized Yeah. And it's, I mean, it sounds like you had to really like take that to the next level. But I was going to say, even in a classroom, you know, you have all the materials and supplies that you're organizing and then many different classes of student artwork. And yeah, especially now, I know teachers are having to have like individual art kits for kids if they're teaching in person. So yeah, just keeping all of that organized. Yeah, that's very difficult because I've noticed um, the two projects I've had. So I haven't had a lot of actual live banner workshops in schools, obviously, last year because of the pandemic. But I did have, the last one I did was actually in December. And normally I take my inks from home we're in their pots with me into the school but because of the pandemic I just ordered brand new stuff to be sent directly to the school so no one had touched it and then it stayed there you know so but I'm going to keep going with that model because it means that the school then ends up with resources that they can use in the future and uh, and it means that yeah it means they just have some resources that they can keep using rather than me taking it away with me at the end of the session but yeah it's very difficult it's very difficult in terms of the kids having individual things to work with themselves I think that's going to make art quite prohibitive in a lot of schools because they just want budgets for that to happen right yeah it's a big challenge I mean the project I'm doing in the summer with a gallery they are going to send individual art kits to all the children so they've got funding to do that and I think that's why I think that model will be something that would just be able to be brilliant to carry on moving forward pandemic or not because it just means that schools will get free art materials from these projects that they can keep and then the children can have you know stuff they can carry on with at home because it's amazing some of the projects we've done you know finding out how little children have in terms of pencils and paper we've some children just don't have opportunities to be able to be creative at all with what they can get from home which is sad yeah and then I've seen a lot of teachers working with sort of digital tools in some cases it feels strange to think you know a kid has an iPad but they don't have enough like pencil and paper but sometimes that's the case like if they're on Zoom with you or on like Google Meets or whatever they have that device but they might not have really any physical materials so using digital art making tools has been an- another option that I've seen kind of open yeah up. I've got a project coming up and there's things if you heard of Padlet so they're doing things with Padlet and Miro and what What's the other one? Um, something similar to that. And that they are they, they are really creative actually for online, aren't they? You can do some really creative things with those with those digital tools, which is quite exciting. That's another learning curve for me. Because <laughs> I don't know how to do all that. I, I'm just not used to them. But there's some there's lots of you know, as long as I'm working with somebody that understands the tech really well and I can just help them creatively, 
you know interface with it it's fine right all those things that popped up those things are really good if people haven't got real art materials i'm just a bit old school i do like kids to use their hands and to get away from screens but i think that's you know that's the wrong attitude at the moment because they're not going to get away from their screens for a little while yet and at least that does give them some sort of creative outlet yeah there's i mean i definitely am all for students getting in there with their hands and it's just a different feeling right definitely and I think it has different benefits as well in so many ways Mm -hmm. when it's something that's tactile and doesn't involve having a screen in front of you unless it's a silk screen a silk screen's fine yeah I agree but I do feel like there's something interesting about being able to use those digital tools especially young people now but for you know the kids that just don't have access to anything yeah I think so too I think they're a definite benefit I think kids will be I mean with all the skills they'll be learning with all of these you know they're going to be in the future who knows where that's going to lead it's going to be amazing things that will be possible so it's quite exciting in ways too yeah it is yeah I see how my five-year-old didn't have an iPad before the pandemic and we kind of had to get her one for school and now she's like a pro at that thing I don't even know (laughs) how to use it and she's so much better than I am (laughs) I know it's really sad isn't it I'm the same I'm always being put to shame by the kids they're just like just do this oh yeah okay that was easy Oh, no, it's funny old times, but we've got to, we're doing the right thing. We're looking at the good, the positives. And starting to kind of wrap up, what are you curious about right now? I'm really curious at the moment about people's relationship to nature, because I find that it's changed through the last year and people that weren't connected to nature have begun to be, how that's going to impact people in the future. Yeah, that's what I'm curious about. I feel drawn to being more inspired by those sorts of connections as well you've been getting out into nature more yeah i mean this has been interesting times for me because living in sussex as i do i've always worked in london so it means that i've always been in london two or three or four or five days a week so i haven't really been in this area that much but since the pandemic i've been here the whole time uh, except for two or three times despite having meetings on zoom with people everywhere and i've done loads more walks loads more being outside and i've been so grateful for living in a more rural area because a lot of people in london have been complaining about the fact that if they do go to a park like everywhere it's so busy that it hasn't always felt safe. It hasn't had the benefit that it should from getting outside. So they've been rushing back home again because, you know, they didn't like all the crowds. But I've been very lucky here. There's loads of really beautiful walks. There's loads of forests and fields and lakes and loads of places to explore where it isn't busy. And I really appreciated and and valued that. And I don't think I, I, you know, I've got as much pleasure from that as I used to from, you know, walking around a busy city. So I think I've become a bit more of a country person than the city person during this time. (laughs) I can relate to that worry about the parks, but feel very lucky that we, you know, live in a place where the weather's always relatively nice and we can get out and just walk around our little neighborhood. Oh, that sounds lovely. And the weather being always nice, um, that must have been (laughs) such a benefit. Because here, last year, we actually had incredible weather for England. It was warm and sunny for a long time, which everyone was really grateful for. But this last um, lockdown that we've had, it's been cold, wet, rainy, grey. And I think it had such an impact on people. So I think now that it's spring and the weather's looking a little bit more promising, that's going to be really amazing. Yeah, but I have to be outside. I really, it's all about being outside at the moment. I've just realised how 
important it is just to get the fresh air and walk around and use your body and not just be sitting in front of a desk all day. Fun, kind of silly question. What is your favorite food? Thai. <laughs> I love I like Thai and Chinese food. I do like all food, actually. But if my, my go-to treat sort of takeaway would be a Thai or a Chinese with a slight preference for Thai, actually. Particularly something that's got fawns in it. <laughs> is there anyone that you would want to thank or give like a shout out to? It's very difficult to think of any particular person because I'm grateful to anyone who's continued to employ me during the pandemic, despite my normal skill set not being I haven't been able to use my normal printmaking skill set so loads of companies have still employed me to do like online things or run a little art club on a Saturday morning so I'm really grateful to all of those people for still having that belief in my art skills (laughs) to keep me busy with all those little jobs so that's been really good yeah that's huge and then is there anything else you would want to share anything we missed that you really wanted to talk about I've talked about the books that I got published didn't I so I actually had four books published in August last year so for me that was an amazing thing not just because I had four books published but it was because i illustrated them the year before and it gave my last year a a really positive focus when obviously it was such a disastrous year so I'm really grateful for those coming out and I wrote illustrated three therapeutic children's fairy tales and we also created a manual on how to work creatively and therapeutically with story Mm. which are all on Amazon awesome and I can link to those if you send me oh yeah that'd be great I'll do that and then that brings me to where can listeners connect with you online I think one of the main things is like we connected like on Instagram so I'm I'm social fabric one on Instagram and I I love hearing from people that's why I'm on there because it's just a great platform to find out about other artists and connect with them and have little conversations and just to especially when you can't see your friends as much and things it's been really nice being able to just do that as long as you don't take it too seriously it's fine and I'm on LinkedIn as well yeah Twitter um, on Twitter I'm my stu- at my studio five so I'm not a brilliant Twitter poster but I am on there. Yeah, I'm the only one I really keep up with is Instagram. I think it's too difficult to keep hold of all of them, isn't it? Oh, it is. What I do, though, what you can do is, um, like, with my Instagram post, sometimes I just share the same post to Twitter so that I don't have to do something new. That's the only way I can keep going. You just don't have a house in the day otherwise, do you, for all this stuff? Uh, Yeah, it becomes overwhelming just trying to keep up with it. Yeah, I definitely have phases with it. Like, sometimes even on Instagram, I'm quite active, and other times I I just... don't have anything to say so I just think I'm not say anything I just keep quiet for a while I think that's okay like that yeah I think so and I think it's healthy because I think if you're there you know it's a whole new thing isn't it and it's not life I mean I was thinking you know when I think years back when we had cloth of gold we had so many projects we were so busy but we also didn't even have email all social media but we still managed to get out there and do loads of creative things and people found out about it so you forget how that used to happen without the benefits so social media isn't always everything even though it is good for making these new connections I just have to be conscious of that when you think it's the end of the world if you don't have hundreds of millions of followers you know (laughs) which isn't important is it it's about quality, not quantity. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. I 
it was so interesting just hearing about the work that you do. I feel like it's really like it's different from a lot of the other art educators that I speak with. So it was it was really great to hear oh, about. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Rebecca. No, it's really lovely. It's really nice to talk to you too. And I look forward to hearing more in the future and listening to some of your other interviews. I really love seeing all the um, different artists you post on your feed and he hearing a little bit about them. It's really interesting. Yeah, and I feel like that's, <laughs> that's kind of the like easy way to keep posting when I'm like oh I'm so exhausted I don't know what to say I'm like I'm just going to share somebody else's yeah, work exactly and it's really nice because I think that's what people like to see too and a bit of both mm -hmm. isn't it it's a bit variety yeah and I mean that's what I'm I'm interested too I'm like all these different people making amazing things and yeah just great to be able yeah to that is the totally best thing about social media because you do get to you know meet so many different amazing creatives all the time because there are it is a huge wealth isn't it of information on there yeah. too which is the, one of the benefits yeah yeah i think it's great for artists <laughs> yes totally and i'm so glad we connected there oh that's really good thank you so much for listening as always you can reach me at teaching artist podcast on instagram or teachingartistpodcast at gmail.com. Who do you want to hear from? Please share your recommendations of teaching artists. And if you loved this episode, please subscribe, leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, and follow me. It really makes a big difference. Thank you. Thank you.